When Marita and I recorded this interview, she was newly retired from the Department of Community and Economic Development for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where she most recently served as a regional director and deputy executive director at the Governor's Center for Local Government Services. But since this interview, she has accepted a new position with the city of Harrisburg as finance director. So many adventures ahead, no doubt. Marita has a distinguished career as a leader in public service. She has served on a ton of boards and committees of state and national organizations throughout her career. Her MPA is from the University of Pittsburgh. But the most important thing to know about Marita is her genuine love of community and all things that connect us to community. She combines this care and respect for the ties that bind with a wickedly sharp mind for budgets and all things finance. Marita and I go back a few years, so I feel comfortable in saying that she can move from church to family to Pittsburgh sports teams to a finance topic in a blink of the eye with an equal measure of passion. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Let's get started. Marita, how are you today? Thanks. Great. We are going to try this experiment of doing in-person interviews. It will be the first interview I've done in person. So there's going to be some trial and error here, but we're going to stick with it. And I really look forward to this opportunity to catch up with you. You've had some changes in your life recently, as in retirement, <laughs> but you're not really retiring. There's a lot of talk about the gray tsunami across Pennsylvania, but I have a feeling that a lot of you professionals are not going to be able to retire as soon as you think you want to because there's such a big need for municipal professionals. So you have some special aspects of your background, and I'd like you to take a couple minutes just by way of you know, introducing some of the arc of your career, you began in municipal management. I'm not even sure if I know where you began. I know you were manager at Marysville. Was that your first? No, I actually began in the city of Houston, Texas, in the Office of Management and Budget, um, Department of Finance and Administration. My husband was a medical resident, and so I needed to move to Houston after we were married, and I uh, was lucky enough to find a job in the Office of Management and Budget. So that was really my first stint at, and most of my career, 42 years, has been in finance and municipal finance, really starting in Pittsburgh when I was still a grad student, but my first professional job was in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then after Houston, where'd you go? Then I went to the city of Harrisburg as the oh, budget director. Right. Yeah. I was there um, not as long as I had wished because when my husband and I wanted to find a home, we found a home outside the city of Harrisburg, so I had to forfeit that job. Mm -hmm. But I then went to the Department of Revenue as a revenue analyst and was there for a period of time. Um, and I um, eventually ended up in Marysville as their borough manager and kind of finance director because in a small borough like that, we wear both hats. Finance really is your... Yeah. Pretty much, yes. I have been involved in municipal finance, as I said, for 42 years. I'm a little afraid to say that number, <laughs> but it's true. And starting in a budget office, I spent many years in a budget office between Houston and Harrisburg and even in revenue, we were developing the governor's revenue budget and we had to be within 5%, which was a tricky 
um, experiment. But that's where I really learned how to use the extensive Excel spreadsheets at the, at the state with the yeah. Department of Revenue. And was it Department of Community Affairs when you began working in the, in the other area? Was it, or was it, had it already become DCED? Actually, it became the year that I left Revenue was the year that DCA became DCED. And the very next year, which would have been 1997, I'm aging myself again, I went to work for the Center for Local Government Services as a peer consultant. Mm -hmm. And that's when I did branch out more. And that's how I ended up in Marysville doing some QuickBooks training for them. And then they needed a manager and it just was a natural progression for me mm -hmm. to move into more of a, a central administrative uh, responsibility versus just finance. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's an interesting to go back over where you've been because it does speak to how wide your network is, which I think is you're not just a person who checks into work every day. You're also a person who has been active in a lot of organizations that are associated with community and municipal government, GFOA being one. Yeah, I'm the um, past president for the state executive board of GFOA, past president twice of the GFOA central region, and I'm also very involved in the women's first in finance, a former board member there. I've been a member of the American Governmental Association. I'm past president of the American Society for Public Administration, which takes you back more towards pulling you towards that center of public administration, and a multitude of other nonprofits. Some are charitable such as my church and, and some of the other charitable work I've done with Fort Hunter and so forth and so on. Yes, you're very active. And I think when I first got to know you, I was really fascinated. You're from Pittsburgh? Center, city of, Squirrel, center, Squirrel Hill. Squirrel Hill. And you told me some stories about your mom. And I think that if, if you want to know something about Marita, ask about your family and how you grew up. But if you'd say just a couple words about how your mom, what she did and how that shaped the way you think about your work in your life. Oh, absolutely. My mother was one to tell me that uh, to always uh, try to higher rise in everything that you do, that you don't have limits, even as a woman. And she just was just someone that had great uh, personal faith, but also personal integrity. And I think that hopefully is something that I share yeah. um, values with her. And very active in her community. Did she actually you work in uh, positions as a like full-time job or was she just active in different groups? Yeah, she was a stay-at-home mom pretty much. In those days, people were in the 50s and 60s showing my age. But she, had she been born the age I was born, she would have been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. She read four or five papers cover to cover, was very well read, very active in our church community, very active in our general community. She was part of the, the cultural community with the Irish. She was a part of the, the Irish culture group in Pittsburgh. She and I traveled to Ireland together as part of that group. So she was uh, someone to be reckoned with, but she, she wasn't able to really excel as I have had the opportunities to. But again, she was the person who gave me that push to move on to, to yeah. better and bigger and better things. And your father was with you in his last years. You come from a big family. But you, was, you were the one in the family to take your father in. And while you were working, you were also looking after him. And he was an, a character as well. He was, I'm the fourth of five. It's unusual that the baby girl is the one that ends up taking the leadership role to care for my parents. But 
I did, and my dad was a very quiet man, but in his late 80s, not unusual, he had a frontal lobe stroke, which really impacted his behavior. He had never had behavioral issues prior to that. And my husband's a board-certified geriatrician, so it made sense to the family that he comes to live with us. And we got him the proper care. We're able to plug him into uh, to Holy Spirit Behavioral Health with an excellent geriatric psychiatrist. And the interesting thing about a frontal lobe stroke or any stroke is that it doesn't get worse unless something happens. It's different than Alzheimer's, where Alzheimer's will get worse. So the, the one good piece of news is that his situation never got worse. He physically got sicker when he then passed, sadly. But his mental status never changed for those three years he lived with me. So that was a big plus for us. So many of us uh, have gone through this passage of time where we are have taken care of parents and are in a different point in our career. I want to ask you now, just as a sort of a dreamer, if you were to think about the work you've done with municipalities and some of the challenges that are confronting municipalities today, if you could wave a magic wand and just had no, no obstacles in terms of time or money, what would you like to do to help municipalities? What would be the thing that would most interest or maybe excite you? The, the dilemma we face in Pennsylvania, it's a good and bad dilemma, is that there's so many municipalities and there's so much of a great need for leadership and um, we found throughout our work with the Center for Local Government Services, at one point I was a deputy director, a, a deputy executive director for the Center for Local Government Services, that where there was good leadership, and I might add servant leadership, there was the likelihood of a great successful government. Mm -hmm. And so my wish for all local governments in Pennsylvania is to move towards that type of leadership and, and that type of good, solid direction from the leader, the borough manager, city manager, township manager, to their department heads. And uh, that's really what is needed. Strategic planning through good management mm -hmm. is what's needed. And, and this is prov proven when we look at the GFOA Distinguished Budget Award Program, when I pick up a budget that has good leadership, I can recognize it in the first five pages. Because mm -hmm. in the first five pages, they tell me their vision, their mission, their values, their goals, their objectives. And then they tell me how they're going to measure those goals and objectives. And that actually makes the job easier for the department directors because they're not just guessing what the elected yeah. officials need. They've been spelled out for them. I think it's very interesting in my work that the when a manager comes into a new municipality and is managing, they may have a strength in one area, maybe it's economic development. Budgeting though would have to be considered a core. You might have a finance director, but as a manager you still have to have solid skills in the finance and budgeting area. Would you agree and what would you say are like the minimal threshold competencies that a manager needs to really have to whether or not they have a finance director or not. 
Now, it makes a difference if it's a full-service city, and many of our larger boroughs, um, cities, and some large townships are full-service cities, which mean they not only run the general means, excuse me, the general fund and special revenue funds and governmental funds, but they also run enterprise funds. They run water, sewer, stormwater. Some run, run gas. Uh, some of them have six or seven. Chambersburg, I think, has six uh, utilities they run. So uh, a person like Jeff Stonehill needs to have, obviously, managerial expertise on how to run a, a business, an enterprise. He has to have a finance background to a degree that enough that he can um, work with his finance director to move to the next level. One of the things that I think is key is an engineering background, but how can you have all those wonderful backgrounds? But you at least have to have a foundation in public works and engineering. And then, of course, um, then there's the culture, as we mentioned about my mother earlier. Culture is critical to all communities because communities don't grow without culture. So you need recreation, you need culture, you need symphony, you need the arts, and so forth. So you're going to say, there's no such human being that has all those traits. No, no, you can know your strengths. But if you are a good leader and you have that servant leadership drive, and I keep emphasizing that because... If, you're, if you look on LinkedIn and you look at their daily postings, they're all about treating employees and other individuals with great respect. And when that respect falters, regardless of who it is or what level of government they work in, it really can destroy a government. So it's really key that a person has that respect, that that desire to be a servant first and then a leader second. I just was reading this morning Greenleaf's servant leadership uh, follow-up from my old days at uh, Harrisburg, Leadership Harrisburg, because I'm a graduate of that organization. And I think it is really key. And and some of the managers we spoke with yesterday, I view them all as servant leaders. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's really important. Now, some of it falls back on my value system, which I've been criticized for, and I've been... In today's world, you're not permitted to speak of your faith, Mm. yet my whole existence is based on my faith, so it's hard for me not to speak about it. As I told a friend of mine recently, my faith is on steroids (laughs) because I just um, feel that it's critical at all levels, and I've been criticized in the past for expressing my faith, expressing my values. I was once told a manager viewed me as weak because I was polite and cordial to my staff members, mm-hmm. one of my managers. And I practically fell off the chair because I'm thinking if, if my faith was to worship a tree, I still would believe that you have to be respectful and cordial to other individuals. It doesn't matter what my faith might be, whether I'm Buddhist or Christian or a Muslim or whatever my faith might be. You still have to treat others as you wish to be treated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a critical. And, and when you see weaknesses in that, when you see that being deteriorated, mm-hmm. I think is when you start to see the organization collapse. And when you see it strengthened and you people be cordial, polite, servant-type leadership, Mm -hmm. you see the organization rise. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm a little prejudiced based on Greenleaf's (laughs) servant leadership book or his guidance, but I think he was on the right track, and that's just how I'm going to live my life. Right. (laughs) Let's just dig a little deeper into this, because lately there has been conversation among some of the managers in the Pioneer and Change community 
just about the fact that mm, managers, the role of manager, a professional manager, has to be apolitical, somewhat you know, neutral. It's part of the ethics. Um, and yet most managers privately are comfortable speaking with respect to their faith or, or their morals, their own sort of personal ethics. So would you describe when you say your faith has just really defined your life, <clears throat> where do you draw that line between how you express it? How does that you know, show up when you're in your professional Morita? How do you either draw a line or show up in that professional self to maintain that sort of more neutral or apolitical is not quite the right word, but I'd like you to say a little bit more about how that faith informs how you show up professionally. As I mentioned about the strategic planning, I said vision, mission, that was the third word. Values and morals drive a person's behavior. And I believe they have driven my behavior. I once had a, an English teacher in high school tell me, I don't know if you ever read The, the Prophet by Hillel Gabriel, mm -hmm. and she circled this section of the book and she said, Marita drives her work with love, and that's why her work is successful, because mm -hmm. she believes that everything she does out of love. Am I gonna love every single employee that works for me and maybe isn't treating me so well? Maybe not but I'm still gonna treat that employee or perhaps a boss mm -hmm. with respect, with dignity, and with, as the Bible says, you don't have to necessarily like everybody, but you do have to love everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's a, the temperature in which I, I operate. And if you're in, a, in an environment, and I know you, I just wonder if you could speak to this just to be descriptive. You're in an environment where there are different faiths and different people coming from different cultural backgrounds. How do you show up in those situations? Is there any difference in your mind from showing up, let's say, at your cathedral? Interestingly enough, I grew up in Squirrel Hill happens to be a, a Jewish community where the individuals speak Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And that was the center of my life was being a, a Christian in this case a Catholic, growing up in a Jewish community. I share that with you, by the way. I, did this, I had the same experience in Ohio, yeah. And so my mother would say to us if we were driving you know, past the synagogue on a Saturday uh, morning during Shoal, Shoal, sorry, I mispronounced that, that we must wind the windows up, and, that was the old <laughs> terms, and, and be quiet out of respect for our Jewish fellows. And my dearest friends are, are Buddhists. And to be honest with you, the Buddhists share exactly what I believe. My other colleagues are Muslim, and they are the most wonderful, kind, generous people, have done more for me than most people have done in my lifetime. So I, it doesn't matter what a person's faith is. As I mentioned earlier, I don't even care if a person worships a tree. I just think it's important that the value system within that faith is that you respect others as you wish to be respected, mm -hmm. or as Christ said, love one another as I have loved you. I think it's. I think it is a critical competency, if you will, in the management field that you be aware of your own sort of center, whatever that may be, so that you can be more. I'd say, you know, just accepting of others. Exactly. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I, I and I know for me, if I get triggered. Uh, by something somebody says, I have to really pull back at why is that? What is it that, that, because if you're really comfortable in your own skin, you're not going to be easily triggered by others who may 
put forth a viewpoint that is like so contrary. Now, maybe privately with your husband or with your friends, you'll say that viewpoint is so far from mine, <laughs> it's crazy. But when you are in that professional realm, you have to think about, I don't know exactly where that person is coming from, but you've got to be accepting because you're there to do work. You're there to, you, there's a, some goal, hopefully, involved in your interaction. You, you're working on a budget, you're working on a strategic plan. And as John Maxwell, excuse me for interrupting. That's okay. John Maxwell said, if you don't agree, maybe I don't agree. Maybe there's something you're saying that I didn't believe or agree with that you're helping me to open my mind and realize that yeah. there's a bigger world than just Marita's world. There's a world that's, that's very expansive. And so maybe there's something about your opinion or the opinion of the, the group that's different than mine that I can learn from and be a better person from. Mm -hmm. So I, I always take that into account that, that every time someone has a different viewpoint, I need to listen to it, learn from it, and maybe change my viewpoint or at least expand it or maybe I won't, but at least I've learned a new viewpoint. And especially with employees, it's a pleasure to learn something a little bit different about them and realize what you need to do is to help them. And that's how I've approached things. Again, some people say I'm too easygoing. And so people view that as a weakness in a woman in particular. But, but there's been a couple times where I've pounded my fist on the table. Once was when I defended my master's thesis, and I ended up getting an excellent score in general for that. And the other time was with an employee who refused to do something I asked. It was a male employee who refused to do something I asked. I pounded my fist on the table, which is unlike Marita, mm -hmm. but I did. And he said, Marita, if you hadn't done that, I would have never come, have come around and, and followed your instructions oh, wow. in the future. So when I need to be, that old Rita, my mother, <laughs> comes out. <laughs> but I tend to be a little more like the calmness of my dad, mm -hmm. you know. But maybe I'm a good mix. Mm -hmm. Sometime we might get together some of the women managers that are, have been in the field and, and have drilled down a little bit about the experience of, of gender and what is right now a pretty male-dominated field. I don't know oh, if that's absolutely. true nationally. I think it's true in Pennsylvania. It's definitely true in Pennsylvania. It's particularly true when I was a municipal manager. I could tell at a conference, a municipal manager's conference, who the good old boys were and that I wasn't invited. I wasn't invited to play golf. I wasn't invited to the, have the second drink after in the back room. Not that I cared that much because I go to bed at 10 o'clock, so I don't do that stuff. I knew that it was a good old boys network. I think that we've hopefully evolved from that and maybe I'm pigeonholing people too much because I may have a tendency to do that once in a while, but I do think it is a changing world. But I can tell you, any time that you come across being polite, cordial, looking out for the weak person and helping them, people view you as weak, particularly if you're a woman. And I'm not weak, but I am going to continue to stand for those whose voice cannot be heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's your moral stance. That's the standpoint that you approach your work from. And I think that's just key to really making sure that you're doing the work you want to be doing. You, you're matched with those opportunities that really allow you to thrive and do what you do best. And I think it's interesting, Marita, because you do just, I have seen you in situations where nobody can touch you in terms of your expertise around finance and many aspects of municipal um, 
you know, the economic development piece. You really know how to put all the pieces together. And I think that is, that is remarkable and you have been a real leader in that way in terms of showing the way. And I want to speak for just a lot of young professionals coming up in the field. And that's, I think I care a lot about myself. I, I really care about the younger professionals coming up and how are they going to get the skills they need. And a lot of the, the managers who I just admire, I'm inspired by, I really want to get them engaged before they retire. To get them contributing something of what they know. I think the younger professionals, I want to say don't know what they don't know, but that's not, it might not be the exact way to say it, but I know as a young professional how much I needed to learn. It just, it, it's just the fact uh, of it, that you have to be in the realm for a while to really get some competence, let's put it that way, because there's just so much to know. And I'm still, I, I have not managed a municipality. I can only say I know, have walked through the fire with a few managers. I want to just move this conversation to a little bit on the side. We know that in municipal management, things tend to move slowly, which that redundancy is important to often preserve the best parts of our municipalities. We don't want to go in and just change it. We know what happens sometimes when municipalities grow too fast. Change too uh, fast. Change too fast. So there's aspects of municipal management that I feel like we need to intentionally keep very solid and not moving too fast. But there's other aspects of management, and I'm very interested in what managers think about this, that probably needs to change going forward. So reading the, the tea leaves, reading the, what's the future, in your mind, can you think of some things that you think really do need to change uh, with, with respect to the field of municipal management? Well, I think technology is, for better or for worse, is, I hate to use the word forcing, but in a way mm -hmm. it is forcing change. And I remember when I first was teaching QuickBooks uh, through the Center for Local Government Services, people felt, I'm like, you're going to save so much time versus entering into journals and ledgers all day long. Now, the dilemma with that is that the, the individuals who knew how to enter into to journals and ledgers were really the people that understood accounting. Because once you start using QuickBooks and it does the accounting for you, you don't know how to enter into the ledgers True. and journals. So it's a double-edged sword. But once we were able to overcome kind of those obstacles and get the person um, logged on to QuickBooks, because for small municipalities, it's really a perfect accounting software. And they were saving hours because they no longer had to handwrite the envelopes. They no longer, they just printed the check, the address was on the check, the amount, the account, the, everything was now already loading into, they just are filling out the check. And as they fill out the check, because that's what we did, we taught them the fairly, fairly basic information, they were forming those journals and ledgers, which would then form the reports, which would then form the accounting system, which would then form the budget. And it went from being all hand-drawn, so to speak, to being automated. And, and back then, and that was maybe 15, 16 years ago, it saved an enormous amount of time. So you can imagine 16 years fast forward, the technology is even better. As you mentioned, you've worked with some clients with customer service and how much that's been improved and the speed of not having to do things manually. So I do think 
that technology is going to drive us whether we like it or not. We mentioned the quest and concerns about issues with being held hostage through a lack of cybersecurity, so there are issues that are going to remain there. But I think um, the better managers are staying up with the technology. Now, the technology can be a double-edged sword. If that's all you've ever known, you lose that personal touch a little bit. So you do need to learn from managers like myself mm -hmm. so that you still have the personal touch but you also have the advantage over me where you have the technology touch. Yeah. So you need both. But I think, again, all of it, it, it all boils down to leadership. Every time and time again, it always boiled down to leadership or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you break down leadership, Marita, because um, you mentioned just being able to have sort of interactions, personal interactions, you have to be able to. There are some things from the early, hmm, our early careers that we didn't have access to. I didn't have access to email. That's right. how early we started. Sure. Yeah. You picked up the phone, you called someone, and you went and you met with them and you had that conversation that you needed to have. And it produced good relationships. It took a lot of time, yep. but it produced really solid relationships. Whereas today, some of the communications that are going on are very, they're also more remote. And it can be easily misinterpreted. I was looking at a, a text message I sent someone uh, the other day and I'm like, no wonder she misinterpreted it because I meant one thing, but the way this was worded, it looked. So that's why it's key to do both. I hate to say that, but it is key. Yes, you need to email, yes, lesser so, so with texting, but you need to email your client or your prospective client or your customer. But nothing beats the handwritten note and the personal phone call. Right. When I was with Leadership Harrisburg, part of my team effort was with Fort Hunter. And we did this long, lengthy six to nine month study on how to improve and impress and encourage new volunteers because we're a completely volunteer organization. And guess what the result was? The reason why the certain volunteers come back is because one of our older members always sent a private note mm -hmm. of appreciation. Mm -hmm. So the handwritten note still stands. The, the pick up the phone and talk to a person personally still stands. It does take more time, but if you can do both, follow up with an email, keep following up with an email, and then if you need to follow up with a phone call. But I can tell you that in my final three years doing economic development, Economic development especially required that phone call and that personal touch. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, I was in attendance in person, and that was appreciated. Mm -hmm. Because they saw that DCED cared enough to send a high-level management official to their event, and that we were investing in them because it was worthy. So there's, you can't say enough about that human touch and that's still needed, yeah. but you have to just offset it with some logic. <laughs> I really, uh, I want to have a conversation with younger professionals. I know they have another take on this. For instance, when I talk to my niece, for instance, and she'll say, I don't, like you have to have thick skin. You don't, like you, you don't take things personally. She, in her view, you, Communications are more direct. They're brief. You get to the point. You don't have to make a phone call, for goodness sakes. It's, I'm exaggerating, but you get the drift. Right. I yeah. think younger professionals have a different idea that it can be done differently and that we don't always have to go through what you and I were sort of raised in the career. We were raised up understanding what you needed to do. So there is somewhere in the middle 
where there is a discerning of what really, like for instance, community engagement. This is another area that I really want to talk about in the, in the pioneering change community because there are, and I have experienced this, being at a public meeting recently, I was facilitating a strategic planning session and a unexpected group, small, tight group that had been on Facebook showed up at the meeting and they were just really mistrusting that the board was going to do something. They suspected that the board was going to try to make a decision without you know, it being a regular meeting. So they all showed up and they all spoke their mind and it was an uncomfortable meeting. And in a way it was an opportunity because there we were. Now we were having, the board was able to have sort of a face-to-face -face with members of that small group instead of it being on social media. So that was constructive. But the not knowing that they were gonna show up and the sort of misinformation that they came in with, which somebody had cultivated this idea that there was something really bad that was gonna happen. We were just having a, a conversation about how to begin the visioning process for the community. So there is in this community engagement piece, this true, challenge and that's for the younger professional there's just no way around that you can't manage it as we know we you just yeah. can't management manage it through social media it has not to entirely be. anyway it could no. be the starting point could mm -hmm. even be the middle but in in community engagement it again boils down to face now nowadays you can do face to face on zoom perhaps mm -hmm. but it still boils down to face to face yeah this the same community when i presented the proposal we we had a board meeting on zoom they attended the board meeting to make a presentation on Zoom. It was during lockdown. And 50 people got on the call. And I, I, I didn't know the board well at that point. And I'm thinking, where are the board members in here? It was just a panel of squares. And they were all jumping in the conversation. And I was like, okay, are you a board member? I don't know. It was a really interesting experience. We are in a different time. And I think going forward, we're just learning we're oh, learning absolutely. about what is what is the way to do it that is moving us forward so the question i'd ask was what needs to progress and you mentioned technology and i certainly agree with that we had a very healthy conversation about that yesterday with some yes, other managers mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of staff that are not real happy about having to really take on new technology and i, I technology's a challenge for me so Technology is going to change the way we do things, and some of this community engagement piece is going to have to change, I think. And when I say change, I, well, I think evolves is the best term for that because, as I can recall, having a conference in Erie and everyone had to show up in Erie because it's a requirement. And I'm thinking to myself, how? much money are we wasting making people from Philadelphia, Chester City, or I'm sorry, Chester County or Delaware County, all the way up to Erie, that's a seven and a half hour drive, when we could do something like a Zoom meeting. Now, of course, COVID's forced us into finding yes. that Zoom can be efficient. It can have its drawbacks, but there, I think technology is telling us, or not itself, but you know what I meant, it, by virtue of its improving each and every month or year, it's telling us that we can work better, smarter, faster, and, and we just need to learn how to do that without losing that personal touch. I'm not yeah. saying you don't have a meeting once in a while in person that is necessary and helpful, but you definitely have to make it more central in a state the size of Pennsylvania because it's just too cumbersome to expect that people from 
Chester City to drive all the way to, to Erie or people from Erie to drive all the way to Upper Gwinnett Township just doesn't make sense. So where we can be efficient, we should be. I want another area on progress that I want to pick your brain a little bit about. It's demographics, it's shifting demographics, and of course local government really has a sort of kind of a traditional look to it. Maybe I even could use the word homogeneous. But I see change and I, I see change happening in communities that where those demographics are shifting. I think there's a natural in other words, maybe there's some elected officials now that come from a racial ethnic group, and then that influences maybe how they hire. I wonder if you're seeing signs of that, and if you think that is the way we're going to change, or whether there needs to be a more specific attention to how government does it need to take active steps to get a more diverse staff, again, that reflects community changing demographics. The interesting thing about Pennsylvania and the United States of America is we're a representative democracy. And it has its drawbacks, but it also has its advantages. And I think that you certainly will see more changes in uh, more urbanized, more suburbanized communities than you would with rural. But because I've worked with both very rural, second-class townships that are so unique, and I've worked with big cities like Philadelphia, <laughs> come from a big city like Pittsburgh, I've learned that uh, there's beauty in that representation. So whatever group you're from is who's going to represent you. And if you can find that beauty in that representation, regardless of its makeup, only because I want to keep an open mind, because both groups are going to say, oh, this or that. But I'm saying, regardless of its makeup, if they're representing you and you put them into office, then you have to respect the fact that's the way of the world when you come to Pennsylvania and the United States. We're a representative democracy, and that's a beautiful thing. It has its drawbacks, it has its pluses, but but you're going to see that the world in general is changing. The world in general is um, becoming more diverse. So I think for those communities that are rapidly becoming diverse, that's wonderful and it's a great thing and we encourage that. In the more rural communities where you're just gonna have more homogeneity, it's just the way it is. Being from Pittsburgh and moving to central Pennsylvania, there's a very different uh, culture. And I had to learn that new culture. Was that better or worse? No, again, it's if you don't agree, I don't agree. <laughs> Let me learn from your new culture instead of me trying to force my culture upon you. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing is we all have to be open-minded. We have to be, again, there's that word love, and we have to trust. Yeah. And, and we're going to naturally see more diversity just because that's the way the yeah. whole world is going, I believe. I think municipalities, I don't want to pick on police departments. I'm working you know, with a group of chiefs now that are very interested in shifting the way leadership, what it looks like going forward. And so it's an area that interests me. And I do think that police departments are a very good starting place for communities to think about. First of all, let's talk about gender. <laughs> and I know that police officers talk about like one of the most dangerous calls you can go on is a domestic. Call. Right. There's possibilities of lots of emotions involved. Not yet, <laughs> going on. It is 
a situation where you need the very best and the up here. Yeah, you have to really think about how are you going to handle it. And right there, I said, you need women in the department to, to help balance some of the perspectives and also de-escalate in situations. And I think departments understand that, but I think they tell me it's hard to, to recruit women and good candidates. I think that's one department. I was talking to Roland Camacho, who's the chief in Chambersburg, and they have an immigrant community, a large immigrant community because of the farm, the farming in the area. Farm workers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he said that was a very important criteria for them in their hiring in police officers because they want somebody to respond to a call that has a rapport with that community, They're able to connect with them. So that to me is like a really interesting entry point. Another example I love to tell was in a township where they had a, outside of Reading, Hispanic population that was expanding. So they hired someone who could speak Spanish at the recreation desk because yep. these are people who really wanted to use the parks and yep. they were having language barriers going through that process. So I, um, I think there's different ways that municipalities are beginning to get creative and, and I think that's a healthy sign. That's, and I think it is one that, that is, I want to see it. I want to see it happen organically. I want to see it happen as a natural curiosity. How can we really best because if we were talking in community engagement... Well, that's interesting you should it. bring that up, is that Dauphin County, our commissioners in Dauphin County, I happen to live there, they've done a marvelous job with their community service officers, which is, is a countywide program where they're trying to place community service officers in every large police department in Dauphin County. And it is, it is showing enormous returns on the investment because it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman, but it has to be someone trained in social work or social services or psychology. And of course, police officers aren't always trained in those. So when they work together, it's the best of both worlds. I know here in Derry Township, where we're sitting right now, and Hummelstown, they have some excellent community service officers, and they are really making a difference. And they are the first person to the door mm -hmm. in those domestics. And they're like, look, we're not here to arrest you. We're here to say, how can we help you solve this issue? Do you need someone to mitigate or mediate? Do you need... So I think having that new style of policing and, and these chiefs that you're talking to are the same chiefs I'm talking to, and they're all welcoming to it. Certainly the commissioner for the city of Harrisburg, he has taken advantage of the Dauphin County program and, and the city is hiring their own community service officers. And it's, again, been huge returns on their investment. So I think that's the, maybe the way of the world for policing is that we're going to have that combination. And it takes an enormous load off that officer because they're not trained in the social work uh, psychology world entirely. Some aren't. But, and again, if you can have someone multilingual, you certainly want to have diversity. We certainly do want to see more women. I'm a huge advocate, obviously, for women. And, but I think that combination is really the right. answer. And right. if we can get more counties in Pennsylvania and, and nationwide to adopt that community service officer technique, technique's probably not the right word, but the methodology, I think it's a winning combination. I think we are at a tipping point. I really do. I think that there's more open to the benefits of really trying to diversify in our thinking in, in, in all aspects of, of what we do. Well, I couldn't agree more. 
I want to I wanted to ask you a little bit about where we can find you now. Somebody wants to reach out to Marita Kelly. Where do they go? I am still relatively young, even though I'm retired and I have worked for 42 years. <laughs> I started at a fairly young age in both politics and in government administration. And I have decided to branch out and um, begin my own business. Mm-hmm. And so I am now Marita J. Kelly, not stealing your J from you, consulting services. So I'm just getting my feet wet, just trying to uh, branch out. But I have had, um, you know, some folks interested in what I have to offer. And that's hopefully a tribute to my multi-year career where I have cared about people and I've mm-hmm. been able to make a difference by that caring. Yeah. So... I know you're entertaining, you're talking with some different organizations, and I think that you're going to be probably involved in some, like, I'm going to say client development, for want of a better word, maybe, and just going out where the needs are and being able to help in various capacities. Interestingly enough, we're in one of the unique circumstances, good or bad, because of the pandemic, that there's an enormous amount of funding, federal funding in particular, available to these governments. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I hope that I can do, and we did this during the Obama years when there were, with a crash in 2008 in in real estate, is we invested in the communities a significant amount of money, we, the federal government. And I think that there's, between... um, the American Rescue Plan Act, and uh, hopefully a new infrastructure bill, and hopefully some management of the uh, resources that are available, because the numbers are boggling. They're mind-boggling for a small municipality. Even the city of Harrisburg is getting $50 million. That's a lot of money. Now, they got so much this year, and they'll get so much next year, but the fact that's a significant amount of money there, there has to be a means in which to manage that and to look to what's the best use. Now, it's restricted issues. It's mostly water, sewer, stormwater, and some mass transit. And there's a few other. But don't let that inhibit you that you're not going to respond from an accounting standpoint because I can tell you that significant amount of money comes with audits in some cases, yellow book audits. So you need people to be able to manage what they're going to invest in and manage it correctly, and they cannot be frivolous. They've got to be serious. They've got to let the contracts properly. They've got to follow internal controls. They've got to follow federal regulations. I don't care what anyone's advising you. If you're not following those mechanisms, you're going to run into some trouble with those huge dollars. So probably organizations like GFOA will be speaking about this, doing webinars. And they did last week when I was at their um, state conference, GFOA. Everybody's meeting right now. PSAT's had meetings this past week and Mm -hmm. ICMA. So everyone, that's probably where people are getting more information right now. In November, we're going to have new regs for ARPA. And those regs are going to be what people are going to live by. So we're going to have to stay tuned for that. You're going to be, I'm sure... Uh, a very uh, desirable uh, professional to have around for some advice on that because I know that's a real strong point of yours. So, just to close, I, I heard you say you're reading Ge- Greenleaf's uh, Servant Leadership, one of my favorite books. Are there any other leadership books that, that you recommend to uh, others that are coming up 
with an interest in leadership. Some people do, some people don't, like John Maxwell, but I'm one of his followers, and I, um, now some of it's dated a little bit, but he has a daily podcast, which I listen to, and he has some wonderful new ideas. He brings in a lot of young people. I've always been a follower of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because the, re the results of that book has made me a, a leader in my own community and a servant leader because um, Covey was just uh, amazing. And he's got sequels and so does his son Franklin and a uh, big follower of Covey. And, and his. And so we're talking about three different religions there. Greenleaf was, was of Jewish descent. Covey is Mormon. That's and Maxwell is a devout uh, a Christian minister. Yeah. So, you, it doesn't matter the religion, it matters. Now, I'm dating myself a little bit because there are newer authors. So um, I'm trying to think of the more uh, some of the more recent books I'm reading. Just didn't bring a list with me. I know, but, I, but, I, I, but I sprung the, that question But, but those are the books that I have based my career on, Greenleaf, Maxwell, and Covey. And I don't think I've gone wrong. And all very faithful people but different faiths. Marita, I'm gonna let you go. And actually, we're gonna go get some lunch. I really enjoyed the conversation and I think we should do this again because you have a lot of good information and maybe after the regulations come out in November, we could do another quick meetup and, and maybe inside the community and talk a little bit about what people are doing to get up to speed with that. Absolutely, I'd be very happy to do that. And I'd like to personally thank you for your time today yeah. and for your inquisitive questions. Yeah. I, I hope I answered them. Yes, you did, <laughs> and more. So thank you so much. You're very welcome.